Welcome to Grace Church. It's good to have everyone here this morning. Look forward to worshiping you. Worshiping you? No, we're not going to worship you. Worshiping with you. That would be bad. But anyway, welcome. Thank you for your prayers. My voice is coming back. Uh, not 100%, but um, functional anyway. But it's good to have you with us this morning. A few points of orientation if you're new to Grace Church. Our restrooms are in the overflow room to my right. There are two nice restrooms out there. Uh, Mother's Nook, if you go through the double doors to the right, there's a place to have privacy in the back. Child care through the door on the left up through age four. Giving boxes are on the back wall. We also do that through the website. Um, snacks, coffee. Uh, but it, the books, you see books on the rack, on the spinning rack, on the tables, books, Bibles, tracts, pamphlets. Um, if those are helpful to you, they are free to you. So feel, feel free to take advantage of that. We love to provide good material that you can read and come to faith through. You can use in your witness to others. Um, you can read and grow in grace. So we are happy to do that. If you want, ever want to donate to the book ministry, just tag it book ministry and, and we'll know how to, how to apply it. But it is good to be with you today and worship with you. I want to say something maybe a little different for Mother's Day. Um, I want to wish our mothers grace and peace. Right? The, the common thing is to say Happy Mother's Day. And when we say happy, most of the time happiness is circumstance driven. And Mother's Day is not happy for every mother. It's not happy for every child. There's a mix. But if we are in Christ... We have everything necessary to dwell in His grace, to experience His peace, to take our trials and difficulties to Him, and to grow in grace. So, mothers, I wish you grace and peace today. I want to tell you we love you. We are thankful for you. We are here to serve you in any way that we can. Um, But I point you to the Lord to find joy and rest and peace in Him no matter what your circumstances. And if we can help you in any way, don't hesitate to let me know or to let us know. The other thing I want to say is due to the fact that it's Mother's Day, we would normally have a p.m. service tonight, but we're not going to do that tonight. So there'll be no p.m. service tonight. Um, Enjoy time with your family. And um, we just seek to bless you in that way. Men's ministry will meet this coming Wednesday. Uh, This will be the last one before we take the summer off. And come back in the fall. But it will be right here, 7 o'clock Wednesday evening. Love to have you um, with us. We are finishing a study. We've been studying eschatology, personal eschatology, as well as uh, other forms. And uh, we're going to end that series this, this, um, this coming Wednesday. Looking at, we've talked about the return of Christ and judgment. We're going to specifically look at eternal punishment. So we'd love to have you be here Ask any questions you have. Be part of that discussion. But that will happen right here Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. All men and bring your teenage sons if you want to. Um, We would love to have you here and be a part of that study. Laugh. Life After 50 Ladies Group meets tomorrow night. I'm at Eva's. So RSVP to Eva. She's holding her hand up. If you are a lady... And willing to admit that you are 50 or older, you are welcome at the group. 
Anything else? Do you, do you accept 49s? Come with a fake ID. You can get in. <laughs> You'll find some of the best food in that group that you you can eat. But yeah, then tomorrow night, 6 o'clock at Eva's. Anything you want to say about what you're studying? G and H in the book. If you're a part of the study, you know. If you don't see Eva or Cindy, and they'll teach you the handshake. Mainly, they get together, they eat together, pray together, have fellowship together, and work through books together and study the Bible. So, be a good time. Love to have you be part of that. I was told to announce the volunteer cookout. So, that will, the reboot, this is 2.0. In God's providence, the, the weather was not good the last time. But the plan is for Saturday, this coming Saturday. And they need you, if you're coming to the volunteer cookout, Terry or Anthony, they need you to RSVP to them quickly. So you can do that through a phone call, through text, through email, um, however you need to do that. But if you're coming to the volunteer cookout, please let them know so that they know how to plan food-wise. Love to have you be part of that. The last thing I have, I did pick up the membership and baptism sheets last week. Of course, there are new ones up there now. If you're interested in membership or baptism, you can sign up on those as well. If you are interested in membership, whether you signed up on the sheet or not, the first step is to go through the Grace Church 101 class. Maybe you don't even know if you're interested in membership, but you want to know more about the church. Go look at the Grace Church 101 class. You'll get our history, mission, vision, theology, all of that stuff through that class. That's on the website under the Join Us tab. But especially if you've signed up for membership, that's the first step. If you'll go through that class, it's six sessions. Most of them are fairly short. Uh, I think one of them is 45 minutes or something, but most of them are more like 20 um, but if you'll go through that class and you'll let us know that you've finished that class, then we'll schedule a membership interview for you. So, um, Grace Church 101, go through that on the website. Uh, baptism, we're, we're in touch. And we're we're, we're going to do some interviews. So, elders, remember, we're going to do some interviews today after the service. But uh, if you've signed up for baptism, if you've signed up for membership, if you've finished with Grace Church 101, um, let us know so we can schedule a membership interview for you. Um, those are the only announcements I have. Any, anything else we need to know about? All right, we will move forward. Memory work. Psalm, Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Just continue working on Psalm 103. It is a very, very fruitful Psalm to hide in your heart. And then Spurgeon's Catechism number 13. Did our first parents continue in the state wherein they were created? You could say no. Uh, answer, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God by eating the forbidden fruit. They took authority to themselves to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, being tempted by the evil one. Uh, turned from the Lord and fell into sin. So, be thinking about those things and talking about those things among yourself 
uh, in your families um, rehearsing these vital truths. But um, anyway, we can help you do that. Let us know if you have questions. Maybe you're not familiar with catechisms. That's a weird word to you. It's just question and answers about what the Bible teaches. Time-tested method of discipleship. <clears throat> but my main thing I, every week I tell you is, and I encourage you, I exhort you, I plead with you. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're in Christ Jesus, you cannot follow Him without being in His Word. Are you in His Word on a daily basis? If not, today is the day to change that. And we have reading plans on the website that will help you be in the Scriptures, be communing with the Lord through prayer in the Scripture, speak to Him through prayer, hear Him through the Scriptures, grow in grace daily. No way to do that without the means of grace. And the Word is the primary means of grace. So please, I hope you have a thirst for the Word. If you're a believer and you don't desire the Word, there's a problem. That's not good. That's a sign of bad spiritual health. Okay? So, if you need help with that, let us know. But be in the Word. Be drawing close to Christ through His Word. Be learning uh, about what it means to, to trust Him and to, to follow Him through His Word. Hiding the Word in your heart. And, and again, if there's any way we can help you with that, we're happy to do that. But let's transition toward the worship service and we'll do that first by giving you a moment of silence that you can go before the Lord and prepare your hearts. Father, we are, we are humbled to be in your presence, <clears throat> to know that our worship joins with the worship of the saints around the world on this your day, joins with the saints and angels in heaven, comes before your throne to give you glory, honor, and praise. By the power of your Spirit, guided by your Word, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Focus our hearts on you. Speak to us through Your Word. Empower us. Change us. Convert us. Sanctify us. Help us, Lord. But help us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to You during this time. Work in us and work through us for Your glory. May we worship You truly in spirit and truth. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Stand with me. Call to worship comes from Psalm 106.1 from the Christian uh, Standard Bible. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Being a command from our God to return praise to Him for His glory and His grace to us, making us His people. So, hallelujah. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His faithful love endures forever.
forever. Let's celebrate His love in song. First with number 48. Holy, holy, holy.
said it before, sit up front to hear this singing. It's a different church up here. Um, I'll give up my seat because I think we're going to be permanent here. Sorry, guys. But it's, it's different. You, you're just enveloped in the worship of God's people. It's beautiful. This morning, we're going to read from uh, all of Psalm 51. <clears throat> Turn with me to Psalm 51. This is the most famous the most popular of the penitential psalms. It's a cry of repentance, if you're not familiar. This was cry, the cry of David's heart after Nathan confronted him for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. <clears throat> How bad can you get, right? And yet all of us, like David, have an adulterous and murderous heart, don't we? As Christ proclaimed in Matthew 5. Like David, we also in this psalm look to Christ, casting ourselves on the love, the grace, and the mercy of our God through Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross. So this is Psalm 51. This is the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's end God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day to worship you. And help us, Lord, this morning by your spirit to worship you in spirit and truth. Cleanse us, Lord, is this prayer, the cry of David. Cleanse us from our iniquities and renew a steadfast spirit within us, Lord. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Father, we ask this morning that you would bring your word in power through Jeff. Open our hearts, our eyes and our ears that we may behold wondrous things out of your holy word. And make us a people who are doers and not hearers of your word only. May we leave this place today, Lord, renewed, refreshed, cleansed, and into the mission field telling others about your mercy, your love, and grace that are found in Jesus Christ alone. So we ask for your blessing, Lord. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love. The deep, deep love of Jesus has done measures down the street, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward.
chapter 9, or if you've been coming for a while, just let your Bible fall open. It'll probably fall open to Romans. We're in the midst of a study of the book of Romans. We're in the beginning of chapter 11. 
And I'm just going to read the first six verses and pray. After the conclusion of chapter 10, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God speaking of Israel. He says this, I, Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Thus far, God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit would illumine and apply Your Word to our hearts. Open my mouth to preach it, Lord. Faithfully. Truly. Powerfully by the power of the Holy Spirit. And open our ears and hearts to receive it. As the Word of God. That through it we might know You. That we might rest in Your grace. And that we might live for Your glory. Grant us the joy that only those can know who are rested in Your grace in Christ Jesus. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you were dwelling in the time that Acts 8 was talking about when it was written, and you were looking at Saul of Tarsus, and you were a believer, you would have never dreamed that that guy might be the one who would write something like this. Yes, he was. He didn't know it. He was part of the disobedient and contrary people who thought he was serving God by trying to kill the church. But something happened to him. Something that happens to all what we will talk about today, the remnant. We're talking about the Jews in this text that we're looking at. But a lot of the things that happen to the remnant in Israel also happen to the Gentiles who are grafted in. So this is, don't just check out, this is just not all about the Jews. There's a lot of life-shaping truth for you as Gentiles here as well. But notice what changed Paul, Saul, 
Paul. Paul's just a Greek name for the Hebrew Saul. Right? Notice what changed him. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. Two things. Who loved me. You could say, and therefore gave himself for me. That disobedient and contrary Saul of Tarsus who was seeking to destroy Christ's church was loved, was sacrificed for, was converted and brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to use himself as an example in our text, so that's why I'm using him as an example this morning. But these two statements about God's sacrificial love that resulted in Paul's personal union with Christ shaped his life. And I hope that they will shape our lives as well. We see in our text today that it is God's love that makes the difference. It's God's love that makes the difference. It's God's love that transforms disobedient and contrary people into children of God. We don't initiate that process. He initiated that process in eternity past when He gave His people to His Son. So we see in this text a discriminating love, a faithful love, an effective and efficient love. That works not only in Jew, but Gentile to bring his people to himself. And that's what we're going to talk about today is God's unchanging love. Let's just think a minute about what the book's about. Maybe you haven't been with us in the study of Romans. I'm going to do this quickly. But Paul has shown us that Jew and Gentile need a Savior. Jew and Gentile are lost falling short of the glory of God, sinning against God, and need a Savior. Apart from God's grace, all the Jews and all the Gentiles are disobedient and contrary people. None deserve mercy. None deserve grace. And yet, He sent His law to shut our mouths that we'd stop hoping in ourselves and look to Him for salvation. He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live for us and fulfill all righteousness, to die for us and to pay the penalty for our sins and to be raised from the grave. So we've talked about, yes, we all need a Savior and that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Chapters 3 through 5. Chapter 6 through 80 began a, a theology of sanctification. Every person God justifies, He sanctifies. If we've come to faith, we have a new heart, we will grow in grace. And then we began in chapter 9 talking about the mystery of how God works out this salvation in the world. Because we know at the end of things, there are going to be a people around His throne from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, how does that happen? Why does that happen? How do disobedient and contrary people become faithful and loving people who trust and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ? Because nobody deserves it. He owes no one mercy. How is he going to work that out? And for, the, for Paul and for the Jew, the world is Jew and Gentile. That will help you when you read Scripture. 
So Paul started with the Jews in chapter 9 and expressed his burden for their salvation. But then in verse 6, we said that was the theme verse for the entire section of chapters 9 through 11. He said, it is not as though God's Word has failed. In other words, God's Word has not failed. He is faithful to save a people from both Jew and Gentile. And so we looked at the doctrine of election in chapter 10. And we saw God's sovereignty there and how it's the children of promise. Not all who are physically born to Israel are of Israel or are true Israel. It's the children of promise. And we worked on that through chapter 9. And then we've turned and we've seen human responsibility expressed in Israel's unbelief. Right? Apart from God's grace, every person would be and remain disobedient and contrary to God. But He is working out a salvation among Jew and Gentile. He is bringing to Himself a people from the Jews and the Gentiles. And how does all that work out? Well, sovereignty, responsibility. And now we're beginning a section that's going to show us how God is going to use the unbelief of the Jews to save the Gentiles. And then use the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous and save all of Israel. We Gentiles get grafted in to all those Jewish promises. We're not a new and separate and different people. The church is the true Israel. And in this verse, these verses today, as we're looking at 11, 1 to 6, he's talking about the remnant of Israel and asking a very good question. So what he does is he asks in this text, he asks a question. He gives a very strong answer. And then he sets out some proof for that answer. Okay. And then as I was wrestling over this text, I thought, okay, we want to know what this text says, but I'm not a physical Israelite and none of the people I'm speaking to are physical Israelites. How does this benefit us? And so in my mind was highlighted two words, foreknowing or foreknown and grace and not works. That's three words, I guess, but two Two concepts. So that's how we're going to break it down. We will see God's love for the Jewish remnant, and we will apply that, since He doesn't save Gentiles in a different way, we'll apply that to us and our salvation, that we might receive some encouragement from it. So my main point today is simple. Because of God's electing grace, we are secure in His love. Because of God's electing grace, we are secure in His love. There would be no other thing to make us secure. God has to keep His people. He has to save His people, and He has to keep His people. We would leave if it was up to us. Because of God's electing grace, which we have talked a lot about, we are secure in His love. See, that's the other challenge with Romans as we're working through this somewhat cyclical section I'm thankful that one of the laws of learning is repetition. Because there's a fair amount of repetition of concept throughout this text. And we'll see some of that again today. But look in, look in verse 1 of chapter 11 to see God's unchanging love is based on His choice. I, I'm drawing that from verses 1 to 4. But look first in verse 1. 
Paul says, and remember, this is flowing on the hills from where Isaiah has said in verse 21 of chapter 10. All day long I have held out my hands. That persistent, gracious entreaty, come to me, we talked about last week. He says, all day I've held my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And then Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? They are disobedient. They are contrary. They are always going their own way. So has God rejected His people? What is Paul's answer? And Paul says, well, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Not sure. I don't know how, what translation you're using. Mine is the ESV. Mine says, by no means, exclamation point. Certainly not, you might have. God forbid. No way, no how. This is the strongest possible negative in the Greek. We've already seen it. The strongest possible way to say no. Has God rejected His people? Absolutely not. By no means. God has not And never will reject His people. That is the statement that God, that that God, yes, but that Paul is sort of gaining um, ammunition to prove as we move forward in this text. God has not rejected His people. See, the question is, not has God rejected His people, But who are His people? And we've already seen Paul say, it's not enough to just be born an Israelite. It's a good start. There there were a lot of blessings for being a Jew. But you don't just get physically born into that saving relationship with God. Something else must happen. So it's not enough to be born a Jew, and it's not an automatic condemnation to be born a Gentile. How is God saving His people, and who are His people? But, but Paul, remember, he's saying absolutely not to the question, has God rejected His people? So we're going to see then who His people are. We've already seen Him say, remember, and, and I've already hinted at this, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And that can sound like a contradiction until you look at the way he spells that out. Not all who are the physical seed are the spiritual seed. Not all who are physical Israel are true Israel. And we talked a lot about that, so go back and listen to those sermons if you missed it. But Paul says, no, God hasn't rejected His people. Look what he says. For I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, seed of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, I'm, I'm, Paul is saying, I'm living proof that he haven't, hasn't rejected his people. He had mercy on me, the chief of sinners, that the rest of you people might have hope, he would, he would say, and did say and to Timothy. God hasn't rejected his people. Exhibit A is me. Yes, I was ignorantly trying to destroy his church. 
But before the foundation of the world, he had already given me to his son. And I was called from the womb. We've seen talked about that. And at the right time, he revealed his son to me and took me from being just a physical Israelite to being part of true Israel. Those who trust and rest in the Messiah, Jesus. So Paul says God's not rejected his people. I'm living proof of that. So the first proof is Paul. And then he gives a qualifying statement before he gives, uses Isaiah <clears throat> as another example. Um, and he uses Elijah as another example. But look at this qualifying statement. This straightens it out for us. This helps us see who his people are. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he has not rejected his people that he just knew about. He knew they existed, so he hasn't rejected them. That's not, that's not what that's saying. This qualifying statement. Listen, this is the theme. If you want a theme verse for chapter 11, this is it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What does that mean? See, this statement stands true even though most Jews have rejected their Messiah. Even though most Jews have found condemnation. Because they have, not, they have been a disobedient and contrary people. But he says, he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So who are the ones he foreknew? Well, see, I keep asking a bunch of questions that he's going to answer for me. I don't have to figure it out. He's going to tell me. Let me give you two words that a lot of people don't like. The elect. What does that mean? The chosen ones. The ones who didn't deserve mercy. Should have been condemned. Should have had justice just like the rest. But in the mystery of God, we've already talked about it in chapter 9, were chosen. Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. Those are who he's talking about. From here, and in this text, we're talking about the Jews. But we'll see as we go through in chapter 11, Gentiles 2. We've talked about it already in chapter 8. As well as looking at Ephesians chapter 1. That Jew and Gentile are saved the same way. Because God calls them. And we'll we'll talk about that. But look back first at at chapter 8, Romans Romans 8, 29 to 30. We've we've seen this word before. So if you want a little more in-depth explanation, go back to that sermon on on Romans 8, 29 and 30. But we'll dig into it just a little bit. But look at God's sovereignty expressed in that end of uh, chapter 8 there. It's not the end, but it's coming towards the end. In verses 29 and 30. This is how we know that all things work together for good, by the way, which is the previous verse to those who he, who he calls. He said, for those whom he foreknew. See, that is that same word. He also predestined. A lot of people say they don't like predestination. Well, you better stop saying that. It's a Bible word. Just figure out what it means, okay? The Presbyterians didn't make up predestination. I've said, I've talked about predestination to people before, and they look at me and say, Well, I'm not Presbyterian. I'm like, Well, I'm not either. I don't care. They, they did, you know, it's a Bible word. I'm pretty close to a Presbyterian, but we can talk about that later. 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now watch this. And those whom he predestined, he called. Remember, we talked about that's the effectual call, not just the general call. This is the effective call where he calls people to himself. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And some of those he justified, he glorified. No, every single one. All those and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Back it all the way back up to verse 9. Everyone that he foreknew, he glorified. So there's something more than just knowledge about people going on here. But notice this too. You see it there. It's true in our text as well, but you see it there in verse 29. Notice what he foreknew. In verse 29, he foreknew people, not actions, not choices. He foreknew people. It was people that he foreknew. And in our verse here, it's people that he foreknows. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So it's people, not actions. God didn't look down through the tunnel of time and see who would believe in Him and choose them. Because apart from His grace working in the life, none would choose Him. And I didn't make that up. Jesus said it. Those who are in the darkness will not come to the light. The natural man does not come to the gospel. Does not understand the things of God. We are dead in sin Apart from coming to Christ. And what he would see if he did do that tunnel of time thing, which he don't because he never has to look to learn anything. What he would see is a bunch of disobedient and contrary people who deserve judgment and get it. So his his foreknowing is not actions. His foreknowing is people. He foreknew a people. So we got to dig into that just a little bit more. When the word, when this word for foreknew has God as the subject. So God is the subject of foreknew. It means enter into a relationship beforehand to choose or determine to beforehand. Simplify it for you. It means God set his love on his people from eternity past. His unchanging love began in eternity past when the Father chose a people and gave them to the Son and the Son agreed, covenanted to be the mediator who would come and achieve their salvation and the Spirit be the one to apply it. But this word for foreknow with God as the subject means to choose or determine. It means not just to know about. It's not just to know things about. It means to choose to be in an intimate relationship with. See, the same is true for the, for the people of Israel. Amos, watch this. Amos 3.2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What God is not saying there is, I didn't know any, there were any other people on the earth. I didn't know about any other groups of people. Wow, I just knew about you and now I've learned a whole bunch of stuff. No, 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 no. That means... Only you have I chosen to make my people. That national Old Testament election there. So foreknowledge here in 11.2 refers to God's previous choice to especially love 
a certain people. And I refer you back to the sermon on chapter 8, 829 to 30 for more. But just boiling it down, God set His covenant love on His people before the foundation of the world. And therefore, nothing in this life can cause Him to reject them. There are no surprises with God. You learn things about yourself all the time, don't you? Peter learned some stuff about himself, too. He says, even if they all betray you, I will never deny you. Well, not only did he deny him, he did it with oaths and cursing. But he didn't know that about himself before then. But see, God knows everything about us before before the foundation of the world. Christ came to save, Scripture says, we've already seen it in Romans. He came to save His enemies. We've done our worst. And He's given us His best. Because He was free in the application of His mercy, we saw that in chapter 9, to set His love upon an undeserving people and to guarantee their salvation. That at the right time, just like Paul, in each and every one of our individual lives, he brought us to the point where we became convicted of our sin and turned entrusted in Jesus. Not, not all of you remember that. Some of you were saved as children. All you ever remember is knowing and trusting Jesus. Be thankful for that. Don't wish you had a weird testimony like mine of coming out of darkness into life. But here's what we have to get. We have to anchor our salvation in God. We've got to anchor the reason for His love of us in Him. Or we will never walk in the consistent peace, rest, joy in our soul that we want. Salvation is of the Lord. And God has not rejected the people that He foreknew. What does it mean? Think about the Hebrew word foreknow. And you say, oh yeah, I got that in my mind, the Hebrew word for no. No. But what does it mean when, when God says that, that Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they had a child? Well, he just knew about her and pop, there comes a baby. No, it's a love relationship. It's an intimate relationship. To know someone is to love them and to be intimate with them. So God had before set His love on His people. That's what it means that His people were foreknown. And that's why it can be God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Because just like Paul, if it was dependent on what we do, and we'll talk about that in a minute, He would have rejected us. So God has not rejected His people. The, the, the clarifying statement, the ones He foreknew, Paul is an example of that. And now he brings up Elijah. And I'm, I'm not going to spend as much time on this. I'm, I'm going to trust you to go read 1 Kings 19 in the context of that and, and to see it. But look what he says about what Elijah said. He says, do you not know what Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? Notice God's creation and preservation of people even then. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was feeling like he was the only one. He's looking around in his circumstances. He's gone down into a pity party. 
Wow, he was just on the mountaintop. Called down fire on the sacrifice. And slaughtered the prophets of Baal and Asherah. But then old Jezebel got after him. And now he's scared and running and discouraged and saying, It's just me left, God. It's not working. It's not working. You've rejected your people. Just go look at the context. Tell me, God. Just go ahead and take my life. I am done with this. God says, No. My purposes are being accomplished. You are not the only one here. Get up and get about the business I've called you to. There's a remnant. Later after, right after that, you, if you go read, you'll see, you know, he appoints, Elisha is appointed and, and all of that stuff. But the point there too, Elijah being uh, brought forth as evidence. And again, go back and read 1 Kings 19 in the context and you'll, you'll see all of that. Though Elijah is discouraged and feeling like he's the only one, God's saying, no, I'm faithful. I've got my people. I'm still doing what I've told you I would do. You just get your eyes back on me and get back out there doing what I've called you to do. See, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And this is nothing new. And it's not God learning anything. And it's not things turning out differently than they should have. Right? Remember 9, 6. Isaiah, I mean, Romans 9, 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, but not who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There is Israel, if you remember that slide, with totality and in a circle inside it. True Israel. Spiritual Israel. The true children who were foreknown by God. And he's already told us in, in 9.27, Isaiah cried out concerning the sons of Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea physically, only a remnant of them will be saved. So only a remnant is saved because God said only a remnant would be saved. And even that remnant didn't deserve to be saved. God's free in the exercise of His mercy. And He has set His mercy on a people and He is saving them. All... We're a disobedient and contrary people. Some get grace. God has never rejected His chosen people, represented here by Paul and Elijah. They were all foreknown, and they will all be glorified. He never has rejected His people, and He never will. So that's why Paul can say with such strength and vigor, absolutely not. God has not rejected His People. So God's unchanging love is based on God's choice. Number two, God's unchanging love is based on His grace. Look at verse 5. Kind of flowing out of verse 4, obviously. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant who just is chosen by grace. Notice the remnant. Notice the ones that are true Israel. The remnant are the ones chosen by grace. The remnant is chosen by grace. Now, grace by its very definition is not deserved. 
It's undeserved favor. It's contra what we deserve. So to be chosen by grace is to be deserving one thing and getting another. And we know from chapter uh, second half of chapter 1 all the way through the first half of chapter 3 in Romans is that we all deserve condemnation. And listen, that's the first step we have to come to is owning what God says about us. Have you come to that step? Do you believe that apart from Jesus, you deserve condemnation? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Wrath. That's not just physical death. That's eternal death. Grace is undeserved favor. Speaking here specifically about the the Jewish remnant. None of the Israelites deserved to be chosen. All had sinned. All fall short. All deserved wrath. Yet like Noah... The elect found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice that. And look at that again in verse 5. They were chosen by grace. And we've already seen that God's choice doesn't depend on anything in us. Apart from Christ, there's nothing in us for Him to choose. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. We deserve condemnation. This, this remnant was chosen by grace. The ones he'll never reject, the ones he foreknew, were chosen by grace. True of the Jews, true of all the Gentiles who come to faith. I mean, Paul, it says in Acts 13, 48, when Paul turns to preach to the Gentiles, it, it says of the Gentiles right there, all who were ordained to eternal life believed. All who had been chosen Believed. What made the difference was the discriminating grace of God, the election of God, God setting His love on a people. And listen, go back to listen to the sermons in chapter 9. I don't have this time this morning. If your reaction is that's not fair, we talked a lot about that in the sermons in chapter 9. I'll just, I'll just shorthand it right now to say, don't go before God and ask for fair. Lord, what I want is justice. Uh Don't say that. Be like the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't understand all this, but I see it taught in Your Word, so I embrace it. They were chosen by grace. End of verse 5. Now look at verse 6. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. When we are talking about salvation, when we're talking about coming to faith and justification, there is an opposition of grace and works. Because the only works you will be justified by are Jesus' works. His obedience will be your record before God, not yours. And His sacrifice taking away your sin if you have it. Grace does not blend with works when it comes to justification. We've seen this before in chapter 4 when we talked about Abraham. It says this, For what does the Scripture say? 
Watch. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was reckoned to him. It was imputed to him as righteousness. Now, now watch. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I mean, you work 40 hours a week and go into your boss. Well, this is old school. We used to have to go get our checks, okay? Go into your boss's office and get your check. You don't bow down and say, oh, thank you for this generous gift. Because you earned it, right? You worked for it. Somebody gives you a birthday present. You don't turn around and hand them the money. Unless you want to get slapped. Grace is a gift. Christ has earned it. He has purchased it. And it says there, now watch. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now watch. But to the one who does not work, but believes, trusts in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Faith connects us to Jesus. So that we might be cleansed by his sacrifice. And imputed his righteousness. And be made right with God. And accepted as a child of God. Declared righteous by God. Because of the righteousness of Christ. That's been imputed to us. By faith alone. And because we've been pardoned. For all of our sins. Not by works. When it, He's using works in just generically here. And when this is done, just like in Romans 4, it's talking about all human works. This is not a special class. He's not taking works of the law and explaining that away into a sort of certain segment of ceremonial badges or works. No, the works of the law is what the law requires of us to do to be righteous. And then this is just shorthand saying there's no human works coming into the picture. Nothing, not by, because of anything done by us. God elects apart from works on the part of human beings. Remember, we've already seen this in our study in chapter 9 and verse 11, referring to Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had, not done, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue. What is that? Not because of works, but because of... Him who calls. You can clearly see, when you look at the Apostle Paul, that it wasn't because of his works that Christ saved him. He was trying to, he hated Jesus, and he was trying to destroy the church. Yet he was one of the remnant that had been chosen by grace, and that gospel was applied to him. Same with you. God didn't look at you and see you lovely and choosable. He saw you a sinner, clothed in filthy rags, who deserved judgment. But because He had set His love upon you, His Spirit worked with His Word to work repentance in you and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen a people not on the basis of His works, but on the basis of His grace. Now go read Romans 1 and let it make sense to you. To the praise of His glorious grace. Salvation is of the Lord. He gets all the glory. See, God's choice is not based on what we do. This was true of Paul and the Jews. It's true of the Gentiles as well. All of the praise goes to God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, if you've been saved. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Well, the language there is speaking of the entire grace by faith salvation. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. We're created and then we talk about sanctification created unto good works. But if you're saved, you're saved by grace through faith. And even that faith is a gift that connects you to Christ so that you can be forgiven for all of your sins clothed in His righteousness and accepted as a child of God. And even if you don't understand all that this morning, you can understand this. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He was raised the third day. And salvation is through trusting in Him. See, election doesn't wipe away responsibility to repent and trust Christ. It's just that God works those things in the one He's saving. So this morning, have you believed that gospel? Kids, for God so loved the world, or literally in this way God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you counting on being good enough, or are you counting completely on God's grace? Do you see that you can't be good enough? That your works can only condemn you You may have dressed them up in clean clothes, but they're still filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. You have no hope of saving yourself. That's why Christ came to save us. He won't won't look at you to see if your good works outweigh your bad because the bad works have pegged the scale. If you will be saved, it will be by grace. No works can of any kind can play a role in the reception of God's electing grace, Douglas Booth says. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone this morning? Let me clarify it for you. If you're not, you're not saved. You're not ready. You're in heap big trouble. Because if you're not trusting in Christ, you're saying, I'm going to stand on my own two feet before this holy God and answer for my sin. It's not the way to go. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is condemnation. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you have Him as a free gift? Are you trusting in Christ And in Christ alone. See, the free gift sitting right in front of you this morning. I implore you. I entreat you. I beg you. To turn from going your own way. And trusting in your own works. And trusting in your own thoughts. And your own intellect. Not that we get rid of intellect to come to Christ. But, right? If you see yourself good enough, you're not thinking rightly. I I beg you to turn. And trust in and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He he rejects none who come to Him. Will you come to Him? Will you trust in Him? If you will, He will save you. I'll say that differently. If you will, He is saving you. Because He's working that in your heart.
See, we see God's glorious plan here. We see a remnant of people chosen by God's grace. We see him being the initiator of salvation. He set his love on a people before the foundation of the world. And he's taking them all the way to the new heavens and the new earth with him. He's saving Jew and Gentile. And we'll talk more about Gentiles as we go through the text and see God's plan and how this is interworking in his plan. But right here we see his glorious plan to save a people from the Jews and the Gentiles. And this will all come together as we move forward in chapter 11. God hasn't forsaken his promises to, to Israel. A couple points of application and we'll be done. Number one. If you are in Christ, grace is the firm basis of your salvation. Stop looking to yourself to see if you're good enough. Stop looking to see if you have enough faith. You're not good enough and you don't have enough faith. Not to be righteous of your own standing. But you have enough faith if He's given you faith. If you have any true faith, it came from Him and He's growing you in it. God, love for you will never change. If you are in Christ, His grace is the firm basis of your salvation. God chose you. He foreknew you. He set His love upon you before the foundation of the world. So, therefore, God's love for you will never change. It's not dependent upon who you are or what you do. If it was, He couldn't love you. You get that, right? Even as a Christian, He could not love you. Because you're not glorified yet. Everything we do is still tainted by sin. We're not perfected yet. But if the foundation of my salvation is His grace, His foreknowing me, His setting His love upon me, I can be at peace now. See, this is the beauty of Reformed theology. It places the weight of salvation on the Lord. And therefore, you can rest. Reformed theology is what everybody is looking for. They just don't know it. And maybe it's been presented wrongly and harshly or in an unbalanced way. But you won't have the peace. You won't have the rest of soul you want, that abiding rest of soul, until you rest all of your salvation in Him. Why do you think God told us about it? He didn't have to tell us that He chose us before the foundation of the world. He could have waited till pearly gates to tell us that. But he didn't. Why? Because we need it so we can rest. If you have faith, it's because he put it there. R.C. Sproul says, if you have any true love of God, that's a result of God's grace because you were not born with that. Rest in your God. His salvation comes to us by grace and not on the basis of... Of our works. Number two, if you're in Christ, meaning if you're trusting in Christ, it's not the result of anything you've done. Works do not determine who is chosen and they can never revoke his choice. God's love for you as his child will never change.
What did Paul say shaped his life? Was the fact that Christ loved him and gave himself for him. If you're struggling to know that God loves you, please start looking outside of yourself. Your feelings will never anchor you there and look to the cross. That's the proof. It's not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Look to Him. His love for you will never change. Grace is the basis of your salvation, and His unchanging love is yours. If you are trusting in Christ, even with an imperfect faith, Because that faith came from Him. Look around this room. No matter how these shiny, smiley-faced people act, not one of them has a perfect faith. Not one of them is glorified yet. Look, you see any halos? I'm teasing. But we're all on the way together. We all struggle together. And when one's down, we encourage the other and... None of us have a perfect faith, no matter how we talk. Our repentance, even our repentance and faith had to be washed in the blood of Christ. Christ is our sufficiency and our salvation. And Christ is the proof that God loves us and will never change His mind. So trust and rest in Him. See, God, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loves His children perfectly, sacrificially. And eternally, he has not, nor will he ever, reject his people whom he foreknew. Look to him, rest in him, and in his deep, deep love. I hadn't even looked at the songs chosen when I picked this out to put it in the end of my notes. But it's a segment from an older version of, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. So we just sang that. But here's, here's the section I had picked out to end with. Rest yourself in, in God's deep, deep love to you that is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, nevermore. His love for his foreknown children, saved by his grace, is unchanging and unending because he has made it so. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Your Word would be the rock that we stand on, that we train our thoughts with and our feelings with, our desires and our hopes with. I pray that every one of us would be looking to You and rested in Your grace and hoping for what You have promised Lord, if there be any under the sound of my voice that don't know you, 
and pray that you would work repentance and faith in their hearts. Those of us who do know you, I pray that we would be able to confess with the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. Confess it and believe it because it is true. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by the Son of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Grant us a great confidence in You that we might rest in Your grace and in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit with eyes fixed on Jesus. Live for Your glory. Save and sanctify Your people, Lord. We praise and thank You. In Jesus' holy name. Amen.